This message is from Icon, from Community, Icon Church. Community Church. Icon is a church located in Metro located Atlanta. Located in Metro Atlanta. Atlanta. Defined by grace, grace, grace community, community, and, and renewal. renewal. Community and renewal. For more information, please visit our website at iconcommunitychurch.org. At iconcommunitychurch.org. Or follow us on Facebook. Instagram. A Twitter. Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter. We often want to know how to invest. If you've, especially as you become an adult and you start learning about what it means to store things away for later, what it means to prepare for retirement, what it means just to prepare for a rainy day, we are often taught and told uh, that we need to save and invest. Now, why? Why do we have to be told that? Why do we have to be taught that? Why are there books in uh, libraries and bookstores, if people still go to those, or online, uh, that say things like investing for dummies, right? Those things exist because we need to be taught how to invest because it's not something innate to us. It's not something that we just intrinsically know and we intrinsically uh, know how to do. So we have to be told, we have to be taught because naturally we're not investors. Naturally, we are consumers. We don't have to be told how to consume. There's no book on the market that says consumerism for dummies. We are naturally consumers. If I need something or I want something, I take it. I use it. That's kind of who we are. So this this idea of investing can feel foreign. This idea of of pouring into something uh, without getting something immediately, um, that feels foreign. We want to know how to invest because we naturally consume. And so in many areas of our life, it's the same way. In almost every area of our life, we struggle with consuming more than we invest. In our relationships, we struggle with consuming more than we invest. And in our relationship with God in our spiritual life, we struggle with consuming more than we invest. That's where we find ourselves here in this passage that we're going to be in now in Haggai. Now, before I start that, think about this in the context of churches and in the context of spiritual relationships and spiritual communities. I was reminded as I was preparing for this sermon uh, about a story or about something that was said from a really well-known great pastor who stepped down from his church. He was stepping down to do other endeavors. And one of the things he said as he was stepping down, he said, too often we add our own voices, thinking that if we just offer the right services or if we package the gospel in just the right way so that no one gets offended, maybe we can convince people to stay. But by catering our worship to the worshipers and not to the object of our worship, I fear we have created human-centered churches. Churches fall subject to consumerism too. Church attenders, church members, church staff fall prey to this idea of consumer-centered churches, consumer-centered spiritual uh, environments. So if the product isn't popular, if the product isn't attractive, we think we, we have to change the product or at least change the wrapping uh, paper to make the external appearance more attractive to our culture. And then when we see that this approach doesn't always work, we wonder why. And, and we see this happening across the board in multiple industries, right? That's how business works. That's why marketing is a multi-billion dollar industry. But what's interesting is that not every industry does this. 
Doctors don't do this to their prescriptions. Accountants don't do this uh, with reporting to the board of directors. And uh, professional sports coaches don't necessarily do this with their training. In all those examples, the truth still stands as the most important thing, even more important than the outcomes, regardless of outward packaging or popularity. What am I saying? People, we want to be consumers of God's grace but we don't want to invest in God's kingdom. We don't want to pour in to the things that God's heart is bent towards. Even individually, it's that way, right? We all want forgiveness far more than we want to repent or change our ways. We all want uh, forbearance. We want people to overlook the things that we may have done, but we don't want to invest in the things that should lead to real change. We consume more than we invest. And we do that, and we want churches to appeal to that. We want, really, ultimately, we want to be able to do kind of our agenda. And then maybe God's agenda is on the periphery. Maybe it's tangential. But it's not something that uh, takes precedent. It's not something that is uh, the highest priority. This is what God is talking about here in Haggai. So as we go into the book of Haggai, be reminded, we've been going through the, the minor prophets and we've been spending time looking at some of these messages that have been uh, repetitive and consistent. God constantly calling his people to return back to him, constantly calling his people to, to return back to his heart, to return back to, to, to his uh, statutes, to return back to the things that ultimately all of his people are called to be, what we're called to do and who we're called to be. So you've got, in, in Haggai, you've got a series of prophecies that this prophet Haggai gave over about a four-month period to these exiles who had been exiled for 70 years in captivity. They've been enslaved, and they've finally been freed, and they're ready to go back to Jerusalem under the decree of Cyrus, who was the king of Persia at that time. So he allows them to return, and they were led by a man named Zerubbabel, Great name, name your kids that, because people will probably laugh. Zerubbabel leads, the, now watch there be somebody out there, my kid's name's Zerubbabel. We love you, God's grace to you. I shouldn't have made that joke. Anyway, you got Zerubbabel and he's leading about 50,000 Jewish folks back into Jerusalem. And they're gonna start these efforts uh, rebuilding the nation. And they're gonna start rebuilding homes and, and roads and especially rebuilding the temple. God told them to rebuild the temple. And this was more than just a building. Now, buildings are buildings, and church buildings even are just church buildings, right? But back then, the temple, this is where the presence of God resided. This is where uh, uh, many of the things that the, that the Jews held, things like uh, certain, certain uh, uh, religious artifacts that were vitally important, were held in the temple. And so it was, this is where worship happened. This is where sacrifices were made. This is where the priests would represent the people to God. This is where the prophets would speak on God's behalf. This was vitally important. It was a part of the spiritual relationship between God and his people. It was more than just a building. And they were supposed to rebuild it. Now, when they got back to the homeland, everything was barren. The people had found things in disorder. Their old homes had all been uh, destroyed. The land had been left barren. Everything had been leveled. Foreigners, foreign enemies that inhabited their land. And so Haggai writes this prophecy to these Jews who had been freed from captivity. 
after, again, 70 years of being enslaved. And when they get free, the last thing they notice, or one of the things they notice, the temple has also been destroyed. So they're like, we've got to go rebuild it. We've got to do something about it. We, we're going to rebuild the temple. We'll eventually get to it. They, they acknowledged. They knew it needed to happen. But whether or not they would take the steps to actually do it, that's where the investment would come. That's where the investment needed to be. So they were always talking about what they were going to do. Now, we all know what that looks like, right? Every one of us at some point in our life have been that person that's talking about what they're going to do. Whereas my grandmother said what they're going to do. Everybody talks about what they're going to do without taking any steps of showing that they're actually doing it. Because that's what it means to be a consumer versus investor. It's easy to say, I need to invest. I do need to put something away. Eventually, I'm going to put something away. Until the steps are taken, I'm still just consuming. Actually, I'm not yet investing. And God saw that, and he responded to them. And if you listen to what he said in verse 2 of Haggai, the Lord of armies says this, These people say, the time has not come for the house of the Lord to be rebuilt. So that's the first thing. God is basically acknowledging. He sees you where you are. He sees and loves us where we are. But you see, he's not going to leave them there. So he says, yeah, y'all are saying the time has not come for the house of the Lord to be rebuilt. So what do we know right away? These folks have failed to act when it was time to act. You and I, we can always come up with every excuse why we're not doing what we should be doing. We can always come up with every excuse why we are not uh, following God where we should be. And sometimes they're very legitimate things, right? Well, things were busy. Well, the kids. Well, my family. Well, my spouse. Well, my convictions, quote unquote. Well, I'm just not sure. Even though God's made it very clear this thing should happen, eh, I just know if it's time. Anything that God calls, that's definitely the case with other parts of God's heart. Whenever there's justice that should be levied on certain people groups, but it seems too soon, well, give it time. Well, I don't know if we should push that fast. Well, it'll eventually work itself out right now. I don't know that we need to be pushing too hard. This is where the people's hearts were. This is where their minds were. So God calls them out. So he's basically saying, I've heard you guys say, yeah, it's not time yet. It's not time to rebuild the temple. Uh, it's, it's not time yet, but, but, it, but it's time to do some other things. And this is ultimately where you see God call them, because look at verses 3 and 4. The word of the Lord came through the prophet Haggai. Is it a time for you yourselves to live in your paneled houses while this house lies in ruins? Think about that. This, to me, is such a great example of sarcasm. God is sarcastic. I think sometimes we think sarcasm by itself is something that's negative. It doesn't have to be, right? It, sarcasm in many ways is a more biting, pointed way to maybe point out hypocrisy, to point out some things that need to change. And as long as it leads to change to the degree that it can lead to real turning away, it's a valuable thing. Now, if it's meant to just tear down and meant to just make someone feel horrible without any hope of any kind of restoration, that's when it becomes damaging and wrong. But, but here, God is calling them out and saying, Listen, you guys have been saying it's not time, it's not time, it's not time. Yet you, you guys are building your little palatial mansions down there. You got your nice paneled houses. Think about this. On the surface, there's nothing wrong with building homes, right? There's nothing wrong with building homes to the specifications that you desire, that you prefer. If you were to go into a neighborhood 
in anywhere in, in America and see people uh, uh, mowing their lawns and changing their roofs and and uh, uh, maybe manicuring certain aspects of their landscaping and uh, maybe painting their homes, washing the car. All those things, we would say that's a good quintessential American family, American homes, people, you know, living that bootstrap life, doing all the things that they should be doing, being responsible for their own stuff, making great decisions for their own personal welfare and well-beings. All that stuff's fine. And yet God is saying, you're telling me that focusing on the things of God, focusing on the things God requires, it's not time for that. But you have time to take care of yourself. Y'all, this is us. God is ultimately saying, you don't have time to invest, but you have time to consume. You don't have time to invest in the kingdom, but you have time to consume things from the kingdom. In other words, we want to consume God's grace. We don't want to invest in his kingdom. This is where they found when, when you've got folks who are kind, and, and us as well, we often can do this in our church environments. We can be those folks where, where many times folks will come to church and ultimately say, in no uncertain terms, I want the church to make a deposit in me so that I can make a deposit in my own life. It, it's never the other way around. Like, I'm enjoying that I'm getting poured into. What, what can I do to help join God's people to be about his business? And many times in church circles, those are the folks who like to come in and have every opinion in the book about what should happen, even in, in specific churches. In a local church, people can come in and go, I've got a lot of opinions and I've got a lot of things that I want to uh, see happen. And I've got a lot of ideas. And sometimes they'll mask their ideas with questions as if they really want to get honest answers, but really they're questions to set the table for them to give you their answers. And so oftentimes they're kind of like, yeah, I was wondering why we don't do this or that. Now, here's the interesting thing. Many times, not always, but many times, those who have the most opinions about what should happen in church are the folks who haven't discipled a doorknob, but they still have every opinion in the book. So, so you have to question, am I a consumer or an investor? Do I want to actually invest and be challenged, or do I want to just consume and opine? Because that's going to answer the question about whether or not you're more of a consumer in the kingdom than you are an investor. Now, how do you know if you are a consumer? How do you know? Because, again, God is already, he's calling them out and he's leading them to this place where he's going to really point out how specifically they are consumers. And again, three and four, when he said the word of the Lord came through the prophet Haggai, is it a time for you yourselves to live in your paneled houses while this house lies in ruins? Now the Lord of armies says this, this is the key that I want us to take away. Think carefully about your ways. Think carefully. The old King James said, consider your ways. That word for think carefully or consider, it means to weigh, to give extra weight to a thing. Take time and spend extra weight thinking through what you've done and why you've done it. Now, for many of us, that is not something we want to do. For all of us in different ways, that's not something we want to do. We don't really want to reflect on things um, honestly. We might reflect on things dishonestly. And what does that look like? Dishonestly reflecting on things is when you reflect on aspects of your life and then retell the story to yourself in ways that make you the hero more often than the anti-hero or villain. 
In other words, you will find ways to just justify whatever it is you've done or said to cast yourself in the light most favorable to you and cast everybody else as the ones who were probably more wrong than you were. As opposed to reflecting honestly and going, what areas where, where, where was my heart just not where it should have been? What, what areas? Maybe I did a good thing, but what were my motives when I did that thing? Was I really prioritizing the things of God during that time? Or was I just prioritizing myself? We, we, the reason why we fill our space with so much stuff is because we're afraid of, self, of honest self-reflection. This isn't this kind of uh, shallow puffing up of self and just constantly telling myself, I am good, I am great, I am wonderful. We're not doing that. And we're also not saying uh, to artificially beat ourselves up. But what we're saying is, be honest. God is telling them, be honest. God is saying, I'm pointing out your, your hypocrisy. I'm, I'm, I'm pointing out your inconsistency. Now consider your ways. I've pointed it out. Now sit with that. Sit with that and evaluate. It's the reason why a lot of times we don't even like, I hate having to go back through papers that I may have written or having somebody else look through something that we've written because we're afraid that they're not going to give us just positive feedback. We don't want to hear negative feedback or things that probably need to change because none of us like to be told that we need to change. But if we're investors and not consumers, then we invite the, the opportunity to be shown where we need to change. Now, how do we know then if we're a consumer? Well, uh, once God says, consider your ways, think carefully about your life, look at the patterns of your life, make sure that you're not just looking at what you've done and why you've done it, making yourself heroic when looking over your past and, and looking over all of that. And by the way, one way that we do that is we often will judge everybody else by their actions while judging ourselves by our intentions so that we will always look at ourselves as better than other people. So God is saying, evaluate that. Spend some time thinking about yourself, thinking about your actions, thinking about your motives. And then while you're thinking about that, let me give you a little, uh, a, a little diagnostic on how you can know for sure if you're a consumer. Look at verse 5 or verse 6. And this is when he says in verse 5, think about your ways, consider your ways. And then he starts to elucidate these ways a little bit more clearly. You have planted much, but harvested little. You eat, but never have enough to be satisfied. You drink, but never have enough to be happy. You put on clothes, but never have enough to get warm. The wage earner puts his wages into a bag with holes in it. Now, these passages, five, uh, uh, verse 6 here, this is the, these are the symptoms of a consumer. If you want to know if you're a consumer, check out these symptoms here, right? Think about your ways. What does he say again? You've planted much, but you've harvested little. What is he really saying? Think about all the things that you pour yourself into. Think about the things for which you pour yourself out. How much are you giving, right? And, and it doesn't have to be bad things, right? They often are good things. Work, We're working hard, spending time grinding, right? There's, it's hard out there trying to prepare for whatever's coming, take care of family, take care of kids, take care of ourselves. All of that makes sense. God is pointing out, though, in all of that working, and all of that uh, uh, planting that you've done, 
You've harvested little. Now, this this was literally happening for them where things were literally not happening or things were not coming out of the ground. And he's going to explain why in a little bit. But for us, there's a deeper spiritual uh, uh, understanding here, right? Because really, what he's really saying to us is there are things that you put so much of your time and your effort and your treasure in, and yet there's a complete lack of fulfillment coming back to you. In other words, how much are you really getting for everything you're pouring into, for everything you're giving yourself to. You eat, but you never have enough to be satisfied. Many times, for all of us, when we are struggling or we're running for, from something or there are things that we just don't have settled in our spirit, you know what we do? We self-soothe. We find things to comfort us. And those things temporarily might give us a sense of, of, of release and, 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 and relaxation, but they don't bring ultimate fulfillment. That's what God is saying. You eat, and you eat, but you never have enough to be satisfied. You drink, but you never have enough to be happy. Again, why would people drink? To relax, to re- relax certain inhibitions, to be able to just enjoy time, right? Eat, drink, be merry. Wine does good for the belly like medicine. All those wonderful things are great. And he's saying, even though it's supposed to lower your inhibitions slightly enough to just relax and enjoy, it's not enough for you. Because you're not ultimately fulfilled. You put on clothes, but you never have enough to get warm. What God is saying is, you spend so much time pouring into you, and you will never be ultimately fulfilled when your top priority is you. That's why he says the wage earner puts his wages into a bag with a hole in it. He's basically saying like you're constantly working and putting more money in, and yet it seems like there's uh, more money is leaving. Or it seems like that with all the money I'm putting into my wallet, into my bank account, there's still a massive hole in my fulfillment tank. And let's be real, this generation, in many ways, a lot of our those of us who you know have been uh, adults for maybe a couple of decades or so, these generations have, are making more money in five years than their parents, uh, than some parents over their entire lifetime. There are folks making incredible money over a lifetime and nothing of fulfillment to show for it. This is a symptom of a consumer. How much time do you spend? How much money do you spend? Are you fulfilled? I mean, that's a big question. How much money do you spend? How much time do you spend? And are you fulfilled? Because if the answer is no, I'm not fulfilled, then you just might be a consumer and not likely an investor. Why? Because the greatest fulfillment should come from being about God's business. The greatest fulfillment should come. That's why in verse seven, he reminds them again. And he says, think about your ways. Think carefully about your ways." So he lays all that down and he says, hey, I'm calling you out because this is what love does, y'all. Please redefine your view of love. Love calls out the things that are not fulfilling for you. Love calls out the things that are opposite of what God wants for you. Love calls out all things that are not what's best for you. And so the loving God calls them out with sarcasm and everything else, calls out the ways in which they are completely far from him, the ways in which they have falsely prioritized things in their lives. He loves them enough to do that. And to say this to them, then he gives them a charge. In verse 8, go up into the hills, bring down lumber, and build the house, and I will be pleased with it and be glorified. What is he basically saying? I called you out. I showed you where your problem was. Now get to work. That's it. Get to work. 
you know that these things are off. I've shown that to you. I'm not trying to rub your nose in it and just shame you with it. I'm genuinely wanting to see you change. So get to work. So he does. He tells them, get to work. And then he reminds them what happens when they don't get to work. Look at verse 9. He says, you expected much, but when it amounted to little, uh, but then it amounted to little. When you brought the harvest to your house, I ruined it. Why? This is the declaration of the Lord of armies. Because my house still lies in ruins while each of you is busy with his own house. This is, again, that same principle. Your ultimate fulfillment will always evade you when your fulfillment is not ultimately in God and in his kingdom. Your fulfillment will always evade you. Now, when we are not fulfilled or when we invest in something and we think it should uh, reap a certain type of benefit, a certain type of harvest, and it doesn't happen, you know what we often think? We think, oh, that's, that's a spiritual attack. That's the enemy. I came from a culture where every time something, quote unquote, bad happened, that must have been the enemy. That must have been the devil. That must have been something spiritually stopping us from what we should be having. But God says, no, no, no. This is nobody else. But me, the reason why you don't have the things that you want or the reason why you're not having the fulfillment that you want is because I frustrated that. Nobody else. Don't scapegoat anywhere else. I frustrated it because I realized that if you have all those things and I give you those things and I allow those things to ultimately fulfill you, you will never want to follow me. You will never seek to be about the things of God. You will never genuinely desire my heart because everything outside of me is enough to fulfill you. So in many ways, you not getting the things you most want is an ultimate blessing from God if it turns your heart to want him most. That's the blessing. It's him that frustrates it because he wants you to be about his heart more than you're about your own. So God says, I stopped it. Here's another thing. It is hard. We need to get to a place where I, I, I'm thankful for the times that God says no. Didn't make me happy at the moment, right? Happiness is about what is legitimately happening in, the, in that moment, right? It's about the immediate circumstances, and those circumstances did not make me happy. But here's what it proves. When God says no, because he wants your ultimate fulfillment to be in him. And he wants to make sure that your orders are prioritized correctly. Your loves are prioritized and ordered correctly. When he says no, and he frustrates some of that fulfillment for you, it proves that you're his. Because when he stops caring about where your priorities are, that might be an indication that you are not his. So when he says, I stopped it, I stopped that fulfillment. I frustrated your fulfillment. Not to just be like this capricious, transcendent, uh, non-caring kind of gods of the Greek pantheon, but because I care so much about what's best for you that I need to frustrate some of these uh, uh, foolish endeavors that you think will ultimately fulfill you. I need to frustrate that so that you can turn to the thing that will ultimately fulfill you. Now, after saying all of that, after laying all of that out, this is the part that I love because so often we'll just think, oh, I don't like it when I'm, you know, I feel bad. I feel bad. That was, I don't want to be reminded. I don't want to be shamed. I don't want to be that. We should be saying, if I'm reminded about things that are off or if I feel ashamed about a thing, what does it mean for me to repent? Because that's what these folks do. The people of God, they move from being a consumer to being an investor. And that is the walk of the Christian, right? Every single moment of our lives, we're battling 
right? We're making these fork decisions, consumer decisions, investor decisions. And every place where we struggle with real sin is a place where we are much more of a consumer than we are an investor. So we're always in that constant struggle. And Jesus has something for that. We'll get to that in a minute. So look at what the people of God do. Look at what the Israelites do. They hear all of this. They kind of get they kind of get, you know, slapped on the hand. They kind of get reminded. They get their lunch kind of eaten. Jesus reads them the rights in a way. And then they respond. Look at what happens in verse 12. Then Zerubbabel, son of Shealtiel, uh, the high priest of Joshua, son of Jehozadak, and the entire remnant of the people obeyed the Lord their God and the words of the prophet Haggai, because the Lord their God had sent him. So the people feared the Lord. Then Haggai, the Lord's messenger, delivered the Lord's message to the people. I am with you. This is the Lord's declaration. Look, this is quite the response. When you get called out, how do you respond? That, sell, that says a lot about whether or not you're a consumer versus whether or not you're an investor. When certain aspects of, of maybe your heart that's not in line with God, when those things are pointed out, do you respond with a desire to really be changed? Or do you respond with a desire to just defend? If you just want to defend, defenders end up being consumers. So this is something that uh, the prophets and the preachers, they're not used to seeing at this point. Mass repentance. You've got Zerubbabel and Joshua leading this, and the people get back to work on the temple, and God gives them everything they need to be successful. And he tells them, I am with you. When you look through chapter 2, it's the same message. It's a second prophecy that strengthens them further in their work. In verse 6, he says something that is super interesting. For the Lord of armies says this, Once more in a little while, I'm going to shake the heavens and the earth, the sea and the dry land. I will shake all the nations so that the treasures of all the nations will come, and I will fill this house with glory, says the Lord of armies. He's telling them something that's going to be amazing to the Israelites. He creates this picture that you might have of almost like what we would imagine like a bully uh, taking uh, kids and holding them by their legs and shaking like something out of an old like Beverly Cleary book, shaking kids and the money's falling out of their pockets for their lunch money kind of thing. I mean, I'm not saying God's saying he's going to bully other people, but he is saying, listen, your enemies, you, when you follow me and you find great fulfillment in me, those that try to come up against me and come up against you, I'm going to use their riches to enlarge you. I'm going to use that because the things that they have or the things that I give you are going to empower you to continue to follow me, to continue to invest in me. He's going to shake out the treasures of creation and bring them into his holy temple and his house will be grander than any church or any temple that had been built prior to that. Now, all of this that we see in Haggai, this is so interesting because God calls them out on their lack of good priorities and then moves their hearts to, ch to change and to turn back in his direction. And then he promises to be with them and he promises to bless them. And we see this same principle echoed in the words of Jesus in the New Testament. We see the same idea, right? The same idea. Why? The reason why we've got to see this in Jesus is because even though you might, after all of this, go, you know what? I, I see it. I am a consumer. I'm probably more of a consumer than, than I am an investor. What hope is there for me then? When I'm honest and I do consider my ways and I look through the decisions that I've made and the motivations for those decisions, they've almost always been rooted in me. I probably tried to tell myself they were rooted in other things, but they were rooted in me. 
So I get it. I'm a consumer. I'm a taker. I guess this isn't for me then. But the truth of the matter is, the gospel is only for consumers. The gospel is only for those who acknowledge their propensity to consume more than invest. That's what sin is. Everybody should be able to see that in themselves, right? Anybody who says they don't have sin is a liar and the truth is not in them. That's what the scripture says. In many ways, we could say anybody who says I'm not a consumer is a liar and the truth is not in them. So the gospel is for consumers. That's why Jesus says, seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, and these things will be added unto you. Why does he have to remind us of that? Because at our heart, at a heart level, we are consumers. So we've got to be reminded to invest. We've got to be, our, our hearts have to be changed and prompted to invest. And with these words, Jesus summarized what the priorities of our life should look like. And this kind, these kinds of, this kind of life posture, this way of focusing and thinking about our priorities, this had to be a little new for Jesus' disciples. This is, this is a whole new kind of unexpected concept, but it should have been liberating on one hand, right? Because the, the, the potential uh, to, to follow in a way that they had never seen before. But it's also intimidating in its demands. They, those disciples were very much like us, right? They shared that natural inclination to worry about the basic necessities of life. Significant portion of their waking hours spent providing basic needs, family essentials like food, clothing, shelter. But these concerns, just like us, these concerns, if they're not balanced by a sense of urgency with regard to the service of God, they can easily undermine a proper sense of what is actually the most important in life, advancing the heart and the kingdom of God. In fact, when you get preoccupied with these other concerns. I'm not saying they aren't important and they aren't uh, urgent, but when we become preoccupied with them, that can lead to a type of personal decision-making that focuses first on meeting temporal human needs and offers God whatever is left over for those essential matters of, of, of personal security and comfort. We leave God whatever's left over. And that is not the path of authentic discipleship. That's not the path of what it means to follow God. Now listen, every generation of believers have struggled with this from ancient times to modern times. We have always had to learn this lesson anew. If it was a truth that has always been ignored often, sometimes not even grasped at all. But the people of God to whom Haggai was ministering to in, in the sixth century, they were having to hear this message possibly for the first time, them hearing this message for the first time. And they verbally may have articulated a belief in following God, but their actions clearly disclosed these inverted priorities. They are us. We say we want to do a thing. We say we're for God. We say Jesus is my co-pilot, whatever that means. We say these things. And yet what it means to be about God's work and be about God's heart, we don't. We, we struggle. We, 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 that gets frustrated for us. When it gets to the time where we have to do the work of God, those priorities start to get unsettled. And this is what was the case for these Jewish folks back then. And so God withdrew his blessings and he withdrew uh, some of the things that gave them real comfort. And so all their hard work got reduced to nothing. 
All the crops failed and harvested, the harvest yielded nothing. And they were frustrated. And in spite of all their efforts, all the prosperity they had eluded them. And they ran into this situation that we often do. And God reminded them and said, return to me. Returning to me is not just this one physical act. It's a heart posture that says, return to my heart. Return to the things that I call you to. This is for our people, just like those people. We have to decide whose interests matter most to us, our own or the Lord's. And they don't have to be opposed. They just have to be prioritized correctly. There's a story, a funny story that I had remembered. I was trying to remember some of the details. It's a story about an instructor that was giving some kind of a, a time management seminar. And so he would use this object lesson to teach the crowd how to manage their time well. And so he had been teaching different principles. And he said, hey, everybody, uh, I want you guys to get ready for this quiz that I'm going to give you. So he reaches under the table and he brings out this wide mouth kind of gallon jar and he sets it on the table. And next to the jar, you had a lot of these rocks, kind of the, the rocks that are the size of maybe a, a normal fist. So you got these larger size rocks, and he asked the group, holding up the gallon jar, he says, how many of these rocks do you think I can fit into this jar? It, it, how, how many do you think? And everybody starts throwing out their guesses, and they're throwing out various numbers, and, and the instructor goes, okay, great, let's find out. Let's see who's closer. So one by one, he starts putting the rocks into the jar, fitting as many of these fist-sized rocks into the jar, until the jar, into the rocks get level with the jar. And then he finally says, he asks them, okay, is the jar full? What do you think? Is it full? And all the participants looked at the jar filled with the rocks and they said, yeah, it's, it's full. That, that looks full to me. Then he reached under the table, pulled out a bucket of gravel. And then he dumped the gravel and he shook the jar in, right? He, he pours the gravel in, shakes the jar, and the gravel starts filling in the spaces in between the rocks. And then he grinned and he said, all right, how about now is the jar full? Now, they were listening and they were like, ah, I see what you're doing. We're not going to be fooled this time. We're not going to be fooled for a second time. They said, yeah, the jar's probably not full. I'm sure you got another trick up your sleeve. Probably not full. So the instructor nods and he's like, yeah, all right, you're catching on. You're catching on. Next, he took out this bucket of sand. And he pours it into the jar. So he's pouring sand in, right? These small kind of granular kind of things. You know they're going to fit more in. So he's, he's pouring it in, pouring it in, pouring it in. And as it's pouring in and it starts to settle, the sand settles. And he says, okay, now is the jar full? The audience, they were, they were hip to this already. They were like, no, no, we know it's not full. We know you have more. He said, good. He was pleased. They got to understand this important principle. Then he poured a pitcher of water into the jar, just pouring it in. And at that point, he stopped. And he asked the group, what's the point of this? Why am I doing this? And somebody said, well, you're showing us that there are always gaps. And if you work at it, you can always fit more into your life. That sounds good, right? That's kind of how we respond. We can always fit more. There's always something we can do. And the instructor said, no, the point is this. If I hadn't put the big rocks in first, I would have never gotten them in there at all. What should be your big rocks? That's what God is saying. What should be the first things you put in your jar? God and his house, God and his heart. 
then we put the things into our life. And then we put the things that are connected to our life, the things that we're concerned about. But when God's rocks are in there first, that's when we get to fit the rest of the things in. The reason why we struggle is because we've put so many of the other things, the sand, the gravel, the water, have filled in the jar. There's no more room for God's rocks. That's why we say it's not time yet. Why? Because if I put them in now, stuff's going to spill out. If I put them in now, the things that I'm doing are going to be frustrated. And what God is saying is, put my big rocks in first. These are the words of comfort given by Haggai. And as we already talked about, they were reinforced by Zechariah and his visions, the ways that he encouraged the builders to build uh, the temple, to finish the work. So what do we take from this? What does it mean for us to pray, God, make us a people who are recipients of your kingdom? And because we're recipients, we put our hand to the plow. We find out what it means to do the work that you have called us to to be investors in the kingdom more than we are consumers of your grace. May we respond by moving our distractions, putting our priorities in order so that we can be God's treasured people. Will you pray with me? Father, you are good. You remind us that your mercy endures forever. Father, I pray that we would see even some of the frustrations that you have allowed in our life. I pray that we would see them as a function of your mercy because you know what is best for us. I pray that you would give us the wisdom to know how to reprioritize, to take maybe everything out of the jar and begin to start with your heart, your mission, your vision, your desires, your kingdom. And then may we wisely figure out how to fit the other things that are important into our lives. God, I pray that we would be a people that is known for the ways in which we invest far more than the ways in which we consume. We know that you love consumers and we know consuming things is not necessarily bad. We are made to need things and we are made to consume things. But Father, I pray that we would be known more for and that our priorities will be more heavily weighted for the things that are investments in you and not just consuming things from you. Father, thank you for loving us. Thank you for loving us where we are and never leaving us the way you found us. In Jesus' name, amen. Let's receive the benediction of God together. These words that we say over and over again, this final blessing. Think about the ways in which God rescues consumers, the way God empowers and covers and forgives uh, consumers. Now unto him that is able to keep you from falling and to present you faultless before the presence of his glory with exceeding joy. It is, only, it is to the only wise God our Savior be glory, majesty, dominion, and power, both now and forever. And all of God's people who are focused on investing in the kingdom said, Amen. God bless you. Praise God from whom all blessings flow. Praise Him, all creatures here below. Praise Him above ye heavenly host. Praise Father. Son and Holy Ghost.
Thanks for listening to this message from Icon Community Church. Please visit us online at iconcommunitychurch.org or follow us on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter.